galaxy brains. Podcast from Galaxy Research, yo, I'm chillin' like a villainous Mr. Make a Million, we're back with the deadly new track Talk back, get your credit called back Dog, when you talk smack, this your eulogy You had a good life and all that But now it's time to claw back and speak with some fluency So miss me with the hate, you could call it truancy My verbal acuity shocks the mind like lunacy Blasphemous, I'm never repenting my flow Cause I master this, heaven knows I'm the GOAT Some say he's the menace, I call him Dennis Porto I hold mad grudges and I never forego It's overrated And everyone knows my flow debates it I always make it and I never ever fake it I'm mad real A lunatic too true to spit the bad feels I'm only max bidding Selling Alex is a bad deal As always, I'm your host Alex Thorne Head of From Wide Research at Galaxy Digital Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains We have a great show for you today Dennis Porto, Taproot Wizard Bitcoin OG, longtime inscriber is our guest. It's a fascinating interview about Bitcoin, Bitcoin development and Bitcoin culture. I know you'll enjoy. I'm on vacation this week. I hope everyone had a great 4th of July long weekend. So we won't check in with Bibnet Abibi, our friend, but we'll reconnect with him next week on the show. Uh, and before we get into the show with Dennis, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer on the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Man, I don't know what we're on, like episode 70. Let's get right into it. Let's go now to our guest, Dennis Porto, Bitcoin OG, friend of mine, uh, founder of Quat Ventures, medical doctor, um, and a taproot wizard. Uh, Dennis, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thank you so much for coming. So happy to be here. Awesome pad. Yeah, so <laughs> check out Dennis's Substack, by the way, um, read.porto.xyz. We'll put the link in the show notes. He's got some great pieces. One, just before we get rolling, um, last summer about Bitcoin culture, Really enjoyed that piece. It became extremely relevant, even more so um, after inscriptions became a thing and sort of caused a, a new divide in the Bitcoin community. Um, we're going to dive into some stuff, I guess, right, right off the bat, though. Uh, Dennis, you uh, have one of the first Taproot Wizards. You are a founding member of the Taproot Wizards. Yes, that's uh, true. <laughs> so, like, why? Or, like, how? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's part of the inscription story. And really, it's part of the story of that article that you mentioned where I was talking about Bitcoin culture, I really feel that the inscriptions and putting JPEGs on Bitcoin and people having fun again on Bitcoin really is the answer to that call that I made in, in that old article where I was lamenting the, the sorry state of, you know, beefsteak dinners on Bitcoin and not much diversity on the people that, you know, go to these things and um, kind of just like doomerism in the space rather than people having fun and going to NFT parties and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I just have to say shout out to Josh. Um, big fan of beefsteak specifically myself, <laughs> but I hear you. The, there was yeah. a monoculture, um, certainly in my view from 2020 to 22 in particular. Exactly. Like this stuff, this isn't like part of OG. People went kind of crazy during COVID and like, mm. you know, going way down the deep Bitcoin and that, that I feel like it really became much more extreme. Some people, say all the way back to the block size wars, mm -hmm. that it's really the small blocker till now that that's the culture. But yeah. I actually thought it became much more acute and defined over the last couple of years. I think that is true. And um, I can go on for this for a long time, but I think some of it is like this um, zealotry of the convert. So these are like oftentimes newcomers to Bitcoin. And 
just like any convert in, in like, you know, normie religions, if the newcomers <laughs> oftentimes they're compensating for lost time. And they're, so they're becoming extremely zealous during that time and trying to trying to kind of compensate. And I I feel like people who feel like they need to follow a certain Bitcoin diet and have Bitcoin beliefs about sunscreen and, you know, all these other like extraneous cultural issues um, that really have nothing to do with Bitcoin. Um, are, so they're oftentimes the newcomers. These these weren't parts of OG Bitcoin. Culture. I love that you yeah. said the zealotry of the convert. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. <laughs> I think there's some truth there. Yeah. Um, the, I, you know, I'm laughing just before we get rolling here too. You mentioned sunscreen. Mm. What are you talking about? People are anti-sunscreen. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. I mean, so that's the thing. That's one of the things that peeled back. I used to be a Bitcoin maximalist, and we can go through my history at some point. But one of the things that kind of peeled back the curtain on on Bitcoin maximalism for me, and, and a lot of the cultural things that come along with that, is alongside my like Bitcoin journey, I was also becoming a medical doctor, and and I would see these Bitcoiners, but also just kind of contrarian tech people on Twitter and, and whatnot, making these really outrageous claims about things that I actually knew a lot about. Yeah. You know, I've actually written peer reviewed articles on on like sunscreen and I'm a skin cancer surgeon. So this is something I know a lot about. And <laughs> it made me question like if these people, like they're so confident in this like health conspiracy stuff, like maybe I should question what they're saying about, I don't know, economics or all kinds of different things. And so it, it, it peeled back the curtain for me. And sunscreen is one of those, like people think that sunscreen is, is bad for you somehow. Um, when we know for sure that like it's the most common cancer in the United States, like 20% of people get like really? skin cancer, yeah. So, isn't there wasn't there something though that like a lot of this? So not that you shouldn't do sunscreen, but that mm -hmm. like some sunscreens had like bad chemicals in them over like the eighties and nineties or something. Something like, or maybe I'm yeah. maybe I'm absorbing this through osmosis from conspiracy Twitter. No, this is true. true. So there's um, so the the FDA um they they look at sunscreens continuously. You know, even ones that are approved, they're always kind of testing them continuously and. I don't know how much you want to talk about sunscreens, but <laughs> not, not that much. But yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's there's different types. There's a, there's a chemical type that you apply, and people like it because it feels lighter, but your skin absorbs it. And, yeah. And since your skin absorbs it, it gets into your bloodstream. The FDI. So FDA, if there's bad stuff in there, it could be bad for you. It could be bad. Yeah. And so they're um, they're looking at that. The FDA still recommends wearing it, but in the meantime, they're investigating it. And I think that the fact that the FDA brought this up, like, is an FDA that's working, right? And um, we know for sure that there's a real risk of UV damage from the sun. Thirty, like, twenty percent of people get skin cancer. This other thing is like an unknown. These medicine or these sunscreens have been around a long time, so I don't know. Let the experts yeah. do their job, and I'm totally. an institutionalist, and I, <laughs> I, I trust these people. So. We're going to get into the institutionalism. Also, let's take it back to your point. You've been in Bitcoin a long time. Mm -hmm. I think we met maybe in like 2018. Yeah, you and I, Harvard but, Square. Yeah, uh, and you've been in um, Bitcoin since well before then, though. Tell us how you got into it. it sounds like you were in medical school, maybe when you mm -hmm. first got interested. Give us your backstory in Bitcoin. Yeah, so it was late 2012, early 2013. I was in med school, should have been studying for my finals back then. And I was reading an article about the Silk Road and this like crazy money that you had to use to uh, use the Silk Road. And like it was almost immediate. I was like, holy shit, this is, this is, something that can really change the world, right? If you can have money that's not tied to a state and you can transact freely and no one can stop you. Um, at that time too, I had a misunderstanding that, you know, Bitcoin was anonymous <laughs> um, rather than pseudonymous. Um, but I immediately understood the power of, of this thing. And so uh, it wasn't maybe just a couple weeks later and I was sending money grams um, overseas to Tokyo to like fund my Mt. Gox account. And that's where I got my original Bitcoin. 
And I did it the right way. Like I took my, I, I didn't leave my Bitcoin on Mount Gox. Yeah. Except for, I guess I used a paper wallet, which is discouraged nowadays. But Yeah, but it was something, it worked. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I didn't make a huge investment because it was hard to get money into Mount Gox back in the day. Um, Do you use like Dewalla or like, um, there was some, there was a bank you could wire to in Japan, I recall at one point, at one point. Yeah. Yes, it was weird money services you were having to use. It was not easy. Yeah, you know, I wasn't full-time Bitcoin. I was doing it for fun, and I <laughs> I just kind of stuck with my MoneyGram approach. I did it three or four times, yep. and then I just thought, you know what? No one knows about this thing yet. It's, like, really cheap. If my small investment, if this really takes off, my small investment will be worth a lot. And yeah. I've mostly mostly held it, so I'm, I'm happy about that. That's impressive, <laughs> um, holding yeah. for that long, too. So, um, and then, like, okay, well, let's fast forward a little bit. We'll talk about, you know— Actually, you know what? Over the years, you've made use of a function on Bitcoin called OpReturn, which tell us what that is and what you've used it for. You're well known for this. I would say on, on Dennis's Taproot Wizard, he has like a team Taproot Wizard. I mm-hmm. guess they've given some away now, but one of the original ones was like Eric Wall and Udi Wertheimer and Nick Carter and Dan Held and Dennis and OX Far, right? Uh, yeah, he's the artist. Yeah. yeah, but that was like the original. You guys are the founding team. Yes. And Dennis's says OpReturn on it. What is that? What we're using that for? Yeah, so for those who don't know, OpReturn is a function that Bitcoin has where you can put like a small amount of data into the Bitcoin blockchain in a prunable way because it's not part of the UTXO set. And this was um, kind of a compromise between different warring factions in Bitcoin a long time ago because a lot of people were like trying to hide data as addresses, which bloated the UTXO set, which isn't good for Bitcoin. Um, and there's a, really no way to prevent people from trying to store data on Bitcoin. So they thought, I think this was the Bitcoin core team's thought at the time was, well, what if we make it so that they can store a tiny amount in a prunable way? Uh, maybe it will offload people's desire to put it, um, to store it as a UTXO. And I've always been interested in this idea of using Bitcoin for free speech things and for art, you know, well before inscriptions, well before even NFTs on Bitcoin or on Ethereum. And so I've found all different ways to use the op return function to write poems or to put like human rights or political statements. Um, and yeah. I've been doing it a long time and I, I've still do it today. So. What do you, uh, what was your <laughs> wallet that you were using to, uh, to inscribe an op return in this way? It's not a standard Bitcoin transaction. Man, I think I just used um, Bitcoin Core. Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't you think can you... in Core, yeah. Yeah, and then more recently, it's easier to do on Trezor, on the Trezor wallet, nice. Trezor Suite, so. Cool. Um, yeah, Dennis has a bunch of uh, um, political statements. One of the ones that I like that you've you're you're, you're extremely pro Taiwan mm. independence, and you've yeah. you've published some interesting. I don't know what we call them. They're like Bitcoin tweets. I mean, you're you're they're forever on the blockchain, right? Yes. They're, yeah. But they're short little statements, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the point of so back in the day, there was a lot of Bitcoin mining in China. You know, well over fifty percent, and there used to be this narrative that um, China controls Bitcoin mining. So right. I had this idea, like, what if I put some and, and that they would control Bitcoin by controlling Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. that's that's how Bitcoin's consensus is. Right. Like that, Bitcoin security relies on its hash power, and if it's all in China, does China control Bitcoin? That was like the the fud that was going around at the time. You know, now China's banned Bitcoin mining, but back in the day. So anyway. Um, I thought like, well, let me put some some message on op return that's you cannot remove from Bitcoin. 
and that the Chinese state would find subversive. And so I did actually a few different ones. You know, one of them, like, remember Tiananmen Square or right. Taiwan's an independent nation, um, things that I truly believe and feel. And so I put those there and just to prove that, you know, China's not going to and can't remove these from right. Bitcoin. That's impossible, right? So they clearly would if they could. They would if they could. You know, these things, you can't say these things in China. And yet, in fact, I remember the, the Taiwan is, is an independent nation um, transaction was mined by a Chinese miner. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And now it has like, I don't know, probably 40,000 confirmations or something. Right. A lot of them Buried. probably from Chinese miners. So it's just, it ain't never going anywhere. No. It's, it's there for good. It's I do love your, your view and use of Bitcoin for this because it is so born in what we often say, which is that Bitcoin is immutable mm -hmm. um, and permissionless and censorship resistant, right? Yeah. And yeah, that those are cut great great features if you need if you're powering electronic cash yeah but they're also incredibly powerful features for electronic speech yes and there is nowhere even on the internet i mean i have my own website mm -hmm. i can put, put stuff up there but like i'm not hosting on a server in my house like mm -hmm. the 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 hosting company could rug me yes the d even at the dns level they can rug me they, they can seize the domain right yeah they can't do that on bitcoin yeah it's one of it's probably the most highest fidelity data storage in the internet, in the world. Yeah, and I remember this was kind of the point, because you know, I've always had a long interest in geopolitics, and Bitcoin was always kind of separate to that interest. And I remember this was the point when I started seeing them converge, like, like wow, Bitcoin can really be used um, on a geopolitical level. Like, states are going to own Bitcoin, which is now the case, and other states are gonna fight Bitcoin, which is now the case. Um, you know, you see China banning Bitcoin mining, and putting political messages on Bitcoin is a natural extension of that. and. The convergence of Bitcoin and geopolitics just shows how powerful Bitcoin is. And I think that this is only going to accelerate. I love that. And um, let's let's talk about inscription specifically now. Yeah. You know, we've we mentioned it and the Taproot Wizard backstory here a little bit. But you 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 were an early inscriber. Um, I think I learned about it from you from you wrote a blog about inscriptions quite early. And what's the lowest? Uh, what, what is the first thing you inscribed? So the first thing that I inscribed was my CryptoPunk. I have a CryptoPunk. So you, own, you own a CryptoPunk on ETH, the Larva Labs, now Yuga Labs issued or whatever. Yeah, so I own a, a real CryptoPunk yeah. and have therefore have an exclusive license to the IP of my CryptoPunk. And I I put it on Bitcoin because I thought that, that'd be a cool thing to do. Now my punk's immutable on, on Bitcoin, so. And you can do that under the Yuga license, so. Yeah, yeah, so Yuga allows you, or the, the license yeah. allows the exclusive license holder to make derivatives, basically. So I, I did that. And, and it was number 89. So it's inscription number 89, <laughs> and it's a CryptoPunk, your yes, CryptoPunk. my CryptoPunk. Yeah. And um, that's really interesting. And have you done a lot of inscribing since then? Are you like a often inscriber, an inscribeur? Yeah, you know, I spent a long time, fucking really long time, writing that article on inscriptions yeah. when I should have been inscribing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I, right. I was like, no one's going to read this article. I was, I don't know. I Inscriptions, are mean, maybe they take off in a year or something like that. Right, right. Totally, totally misconceived. I mean, it, it went parabolic. I, we, you wrote yeah. that in January. Mm -hmm. We caught up, you and I, in early February. I became inscription pilled after talking with you, or very interested in it, I should say. Yeah. We had Casey Rotomore on this show, I think like February 9th or 10th. Super early still. Yeah. We hung out early February. I my I inscribed so I went ahead and inscribed my Twitter avatar, current Twitter avatar with the orange mm -hmm. background. Um, got in on February seventh. So it's ten thousand eight eight eight. Just two weeks before it we were like at sub two hundred. And of course now we know it's, you know, over ten million. 
Yeah, I mean, there is just so much desire for fun, especially in Bitcoin. Like, why do the Ethereum's going to have all the fun? It, like, <laughs> I was at um, an Ethereum event in Montenegro recently, and like these people, they get to have so much fun. They get to have all the nice things. Why don't we get any nice things? <laughs> and there's been so much desire and pent up demand for these things in Bitcoin that now that there is an easy way to put art and put JPEGs and all kinds of things on on Bitcoin, like there's a huge demand for that. And good riddance, like it's it's really bringing back good culture to Bitcoin. All right, so we'll talk about your trip uh, to Zuzulu uh, in a minute because <clears throat> that's also very interesting. You, you told me about um, inscriptions now, though. So we have you talk about the culture that it's brought to Bitcoin. Yeah. What about the sort of long term thesis then for Bitcoin? Because for a long time, of course, you know, you saw in our office here we have the uh, white Bitcoin white paper on the ceiling. It's you know, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. It's not an electronic, uh, Satoshi didn't design it as an electronic, you know, uh, virtual machine, a general computation blockchain, et cetera, the way, yeah. the way newer other blockchains are. Yeah. Um, but there's been a view, I think Pete Rizzo has described this quite well, uh, between the network maximalists, the platform maximalists, and the monetary maximalists mm-hmm. in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, with the monetary maximalists being the dominant culture for a long time. Yeah. Um, which is the view that Bitcoin uh, is primarily sound money. Sure. But it's very clear that the platform maximus, the idea was that um, Bitcoin is a platform for building stuff. It's mm-hmm. not just sound money. It's a platform. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a more OG idea of uh, people used to say that, you know, altcoins were test nets for Bitcoin. Anything great from an altcoin might one day be incorporated into Bitcoin. Yes. Has that door been reopened now with inscriptions? Man, I have so much to say on this topic. So first of all, like, I just don't think it's helpful to think about what Satoshi would have wanted. And maybe it's sacrilege. Some people like review it, view him as like a religious figure. But I... You know, what what his original thoughts about Bitcoin were in 2008, do they really apply to 2023? I mean, Bitcoin just is at this point. And there's nothing that even if even if Satoshi revealed himself today and wanted to make a change in Bitcoin, like there's very little this person can do at this point. So this project has outgrew Satoshi. Um, And speaking more to your later points that you brought up, like. We need to have even for, even for the Bitcoin monetary thesis to work, and I I believe it. I think it's Bitcoin is sound money, right? That's I think that is a use case for Bitcoin that actually has product mar- product market fit and is going to take off and succeed. But for that to succeed, like we need to have activity on layer one, and there really wasn't any. Like when I made my CryptoPunk inscription, like at number eighty nine back in January, I I think I did one sat for VB or whatever. Yeah. And that's just like not sustainable to uh, to Bitcoin having um, continued hash power that is going to secure it as the block subsidy goes away. And now it's been six months, right, since inscriptions have came out. And I think, you know, we're chugging along like at 50 sats per VB or whatever. Yeah. So um, we really need to have activity and speculation is good, in my opinion, uh, on top of Bitcoin and art and all kinds of things. We need We need to have these things happening on Bitcoin for Bitcoin to continue to be to, to continue to have promise as sound money too. And you see the door has, you say we need to have it, but it, is it happening? It's starting, inscriptions are happening. Yeah, I mean. What about more stuff? If people gonna it's build, so funny. Like, like inscriptions aren't just art, right? What else are, yeah. Well, I, I do want to make this point. Like there's been many times already in these six months where uh, the monetary maximalists or the, the Bitcoin maximalists, I'll, I'll just say, the people yeah. who are anti-NFTs, anti-inscriptions, yeah. There's been many times where they've called inscriptions dead already, where they've called it a fad and they've, um, you know, we've had like a little downtick in the number of inscriptions and they'll be like, oh, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just goes back up again. They find out BRC20s or some new thing to speculate on. And 
I don't think that people, I don't think humans are going to quit wanting to speculate. I don't think humans are going to quit wanting to look at pretty things or quit wanting to join communities built on tokens or built on JPEGs or whatever. Like, I think Ethereum also, I really appreciate Ethereum for this. It's proven out that this has long lasting potential and staying power. Like CryptoPunks, which people still love today, I still love mine. You know, it's the first thing I put on Bitcoin. CryptoPunks, I, I think they started in 2017, yeah. right? And, you know, they go up and down, but mostly they go up, right? So. I, I think that you can think of inscriptions and NFTs generally as digital art, and it's not going anywhere. And in fact, I think it's going to go straight up. I don't, I don't think it's a fad. Definitely not a fad. Very interesting. I, I think uh, it's definitely changing. I mean, I think the Bitcoin culture is expanding. Mm -hmm. There's some clash mm -hmm. happening. If you look at um, like Bitcoin 2023, which I had a great time at, by the way, phenomenal conference. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin Magazine has, has I, you know, I don't know if I'll say embraced inscriptions, but they're interested in them. They, yeah. There was inscriptions content at the yes um, at the conference. Some hardcore maximalists boycotted the conference over this. Yeah. You also saw um, content. I haven't seen it yet, but I've, I've seen that there was content. Uh, from BTC Prague, which looked like a great conference, by the way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that was very that that conference was much more anti-inscriptions. Yeah, um, this is a clash, yeah. a culture clash occurring. Is that healthy for Bitcoin? It is. Yeah, you know, I think so. First of all, I appreciate the monetary maximalists, the people who are only focused on Bitcoin's use case as money. Like, there's no rule that you have to enjoy all the different things that Bitcoin totally. is used for. So, I appreciate that. Um, on the other hand, like, I think that the 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 people in Bitcoin who are kind of all swept up in the the Bitcoin culture war and contrarianism and you know this meat stuff like <laughs> you're not going to convince these people to start wearing sunscreen right, right. <laughs> but you're going to you're going to grow Bitcoin to include tons more people that they're that they're, they're kind of irrelevant and I think we're actually we've actually achieved that I don't think that the, the, the group the group that is having the most fun is the group that's going to win like you're not going to win a bunch of people into Bitcoin by advocating some restrictionist religion or, or like abstention religion. You're going to win by having like the most fun parties and by having pretty things to look at. And, you know, underneath all that is like this extremely robust blockchain that people love, Bitcoin, yeah. um, that we all love, even even these um, these maximalists. But uh, the, the group that's having the most fun is going to bring in all the new people and they're going to crowd out these, these kind of um, contrarian voices on the fringes. So. Let's talk about Zuzalu. Uh, this is an event that you were at in Montenegro. Um, first of all, you give a fascinating presentation there, which we're going to get into, but what was this event? Sure, yeah. So Zuzalu, um, it was a hangout for two months um, in a small town called Lustica Bay in Montenegro, really beautiful area, kind of uh, right on the um, Adriatic Sea, not far from Italy. And it was focused mostly on the network state, um, but especially like Vitalik's vision for the network state. Uh, he kind of seeded this this idea um, for us all to get together for two months in Montenegro. I only stayed for the very end of it because I have to see patients and things. <laughs> yeah. um, but You're I really love it. a practicing medical doctor. I'm a practicing medical doctor, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I loved it, and I got to meet such interesting people. And it's, it's a convergence of a lot of different um, points of view. So you had people there who are interested like in life extension. You had people there who are interested in network states, which was kind of like my contribution talking about institutions. And then there's lots of like ZK people there and just like Ethereum scaling people there and all kinds of different um, all kinds of different groups. And you had like a meeting of the minds. And we, there was a little Ethereum conference, um, EdCon, that was happening in a nearby city. And 
Um, so it was basically an early an early group getting together talking about network states. So the network state is uh, what I guess Balaji Srinivasan's promulgated concept, although it's not the first time something like this has been proposed, but the idea yeah. that what the future won't just be nation states, it will be network states created on the internet? Is that the base concept? Yeah, you know, um, Balaji wrote a book on it. Um, there's other people too um, working on on different concepts and different visions of network states. But the core idea is basically like a digital first community or nation. And depending on the version of it that you believe in or that you advocate for, maybe this digital first community can even get some, can achieve some sovereignty or some autonomy from you know more traditional jurisdictions over time, and you know influence laws or even become their own freestanding nation. So. Yeah, fascinating. So you gave a talk there um, about institutions, and and one of my favorites, Dennis has great um, like I used to love these. They've been these have been around forever, but these surveys where you fill out a survey and it. Yes. online and, oh, it, yeah. and it places you in a in a usually in a um, four box matrix like mm -hmm. you know it would be and, and and you have some that are you I think you have a couple of these actually right or you have had several versions over time um, but you have one about institutional where you fall in the institutional spectrum yeah exactly yeah um, um, but and you gave this talk so to tell us what what you said and you said earlier you're an institutionalist what does that mean well I like so let me answer you have a few questions there yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so yeah, so I I made I wrote an article and made like a quiz to accompany it that will that kind of tries to map where your thinking is at in relation to whether you believe institutions that we have today are good, whether they're bad, whether we need to replace them with something else. Um, and the reason, the inspiration that I had for this was, you know, back in the day, like with the political compasses that you mentioned, yeah, like left and right economic access and left and right social access that used to really sort people and explain politics well. Yeah. Like if you took these quizzes, like you could very clearly find like-minded people based on You really on could. This. They yeah. were pretty effective. And the Republican Party was very, like they were pretty consistently socially conservative, economically conservative. The, you know, lib liberal parties in, in different jurisdictions was pretty liberal, economic and socially. Um, but it just doesn't work anymore. Like our politics today has, has flipped. And I was trying to make sense of why that was. And what it come, came down to was that really the politics today, and this isn't just in the U.S., but in a lot of like, um, you know, Western or dem democratic countries, it's basically just either revolt or support of institutions. And there's a lot of things that prompted this. You know, even going back to the Iraq war, I think was one of the first times where we really started to lose faith in our institutions, but also, you know, just like more recent things like COVID and lockdowns and denial of election results and all, all these things are just like really big challenges to the legitimacy of institutions. And so our politics now, you have people on the old left and right who are allies in support of institutions and you have people on the old left and right who are opposed to institutions. And you see that all the time. And this quiz kind of maps you like onto that. Do you support, you know, our current institutional hegemons like I don't know, the UN, the New York Times, NATO, Harvard, things right. like that, or are you opposed to these things? Right. And and I guess just, just as an example to kind of demonstrate this point more, like if you look at institutionalists today, you'll see people who are used to be on the left, like Joe Biden, and people who used to be on the right, like Liz Cheney, they're all this, like basically they say the same things now, even though they would have disagreed on core issues in the past, because institutions are upstream of all of these like economic and societal questions. And similarly, among the contrarian group, you have 
um, old school liberals like um, Noam Chomsky or RFK Jr., who are all of a sudden allies with Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and these kind of right-leaning um, contrarian types. Because they're so, reformers, they're, they want to overturn they, yeah, the institutions. Yeah, they, they, they see, I mean, I hate to disparage this group, but <laughs> they see like Russia invade Ukraine and they're like, oh, that's NATO's fault. Like they, they, they find the fault in, rather than, um, they find fault in the institutions. In our institutions. Yeah, the institutional than, hegemons, basically. Yes, yeah. So um, whether it's the WHO or the New York Times, like these people hate the New York Times. And they yeah. they are always disparaging. Like in, in a lot of these places, like the WHO deserves criticism, but should we reform it? Or is it is it just like rotten, like the contrarians think, that we just need to replace it whole heart, like wholesale with something else, you know? So, fascinating. So um, I, I that's it's a fascinating analysis. Thank you. <laughs> and where do you stand? Uh, you you clearly are in, if you're, you're in support of institutions as a concept. Yeah. And if there's something wrong, you'd say reform rather than tear down? Exactly, yeah. I think, I believe that the institutions we have today are really valuable. I really, I think NATO is extremely important. I think that if we got rid of NATO or NATO disappeared or NATO fractured or something, be untold calamity across the world, right? Not just for economics, but, you know, you know, Imperial countries would get bigger. Other countries, you know, there'd be lots of death and dying, and it, you, we don't want a world without NATO. And similarly, like, even though I'm very critical of the UN, like the UN Human Rights Council has, like, I don't know, like uh, <laughs> Cuba and, <laughs> and Saudi Arabia on, on, on the council, which is just crazy, but there's still things that the UN does that is worth preserving. And so what my, what my perspective is, is these institutions, the New York Times, et cetera, we need to reform these and make them better. Yeah. Um, with, with even, even with crypto, with, with Bitcoin, with technology. So you're not a crypto anarchist. No, I'm not. And I, I have a lot of skepticism towards the point of view that we can, you know, just like, I'm just going to put all my reliance in MetaMask and, <laughs> or all my reliance in just like, you know, 21 million equals 21 million. Like that's not a coherent. Don't matter, bro. Bitcoin don't care, right? <laughs> exactly. That's not enough. Like I used to, because the reason why I'm so critical of this take is because this is how I used to think back in high school, right? Yeah. I used to be like a huge Ayn Rand bro, like kid. <laughs> and I was super into the Libertarian Party and the Free State Project. But once you travel and you meet other kinds of people and you get like more complicated, nuanced views of the world. And also critically, once you're like me and you're having to work with patients who rely on these systems, like maybe they're oftentimes immigrants, they rely on Medicaid, um, they rely on Social Security continuing to function. <laughs> you can't like, you can't then advocate for a system collapse and 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 also care about people like that because yeah. it's going to hurt those people yeah and so we need to advocate that our institutions stay resilient and maybe that means that the fed needs to have some bitcoin on its balance sheet or something but just like, rather than end the fed reform the fed yeah perhaps yeah yeah i mean i think the fed probably needs more upheaval than some of these no, other no, institutions I, I, that's but. just the one example but yes i think yeah, that's the, that's I think the analogy a lot of a lot of institutions do a pretty darn good job i think nato does a good job i actually like the new york times they do really good investigative what about the u.s and, government does that do a good job on yeah i mean it's complicated and it depends on what point in history you're talking about. and also that's a giant organization i mentioned that's not just one institution but yeah and i think it deserves some upheaval we're going through upheaval now with yeah it. yeah we need we, we need to get better people elected and we need to reform how our elections work and um but I'm not saying that, like, let's overthrow the U.S. government and replace it with a smart contract, you know. And we, there's also not, like, there's not room for <laughs> all of this. Is that what people at uh, Zuzalu right? were suggesting? No, but there, there is like this. Like, replacing governments with, like, immutable code? Well, I think, so the more reasonable people in Zuzalu who like network states, and I include myself in this group, I think network states are cool. Uh, what we advocate for is 
you know, very, very slow piecemeal kind of autonomy. So first maybe we, uh, maybe it's just like a group chat, like we're in some group chats together. And um, right. maybe what, what if we all decide that we want to throw in a Bitcoin? And, and start a political action. So now we have committee. a treasury. The group <laughs> we have a treasury. A treasury yeah. yeah, and we can we can start a pack with that treasury and try to influence some laws. And then if we show ourselves to be maybe good stewards of that money and become trustworthy, and maybe some of us get elected to offices, we can slowly over time advocate for more um, laws that we agree with, and maybe maybe someday we can get some some autonomy in a limited way. Formality right? around that network state. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we can issue our own residency cards or I see. I know, so, something like that. Yeah, and it's it's not a tear down and rebuild. It's a it's a work in the system, reform the yeah. system, find but that's, your That's my it. view. That's right. like, there's definitely the other side. Like to, <laughs> sure. to, to network states too, there's like this division. So there's this other side of like accelerationists who think that, oh, you know, the, the institutions that we have today are just rotten to the core and financial collapse is inevitable and the UN and NATO are rotten and we just need to exit these things and you know bitcoin is your life raft and the problem is though is there's like not room not enough room in singapore for all of us to exit to and like i'd said before like there's untold calamity that would happen if suddenly you don't have the united nations and nato and the experts in charge of things where they actually have true expertise, not just like not just like political appointees, but true experts who have who have domain knowledge. Like we actually rely on these people, yeah, um, for the functioning of society. But there's a there's a big group within network states who really advocates and for pushing through this like fourth turning type calamity so that yeah. they so that their ideal utopian crypto society can emerge on the other side. This is I was just I, I was looking at my phone because I was reviewing one of our conversations because mm. I recalled the term accelerationist that you brought up, which yeah. is a great term. It's very clearly. And I think I said at the time I said I'm not anti institution at all. I just think a lot of these institutions are too effed up to save. And you were like that that is the accelerationist <laughs> view, basically. That is no. I mean, um, so, it's, so accelerationist even goes a step further. Let's and, yeah. let's collapse them. Yeah, exactly right. right. So these are people like there's, um, there's people who try to try to I'm trying to think of a good example, but there are groups that like think that a civil war is inevitable, and so they'll try to play both sides of it. May as well just have it happen now. Yeah, exactly. Like bring say. bring it sooner so that we can get through it. No, I mean, and, a lot of people- people who try take, to spark bank runs, I was gonna say, take example. the debt ceiling debate. A lot of yeah. people said, let it, let, let it let default. It, let it default. Yeah. Do you know the, the archetype, the, the type of person that looks at our inflation numbers coming down, like inflation improving, and they're like, oh shit. <laughs> right. These are the accelerationists, right? They're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm long, I'm long Bitcoin I'm long and chaos. I'm short the world. Yeah, they want to be long chaos yeah. and short exactly. stability. And so this is a problem. This is another reason why you want to have a normie job because you need to have some kind of investment in the continuing functioning of society to be a good person. I, I like opinion. that you brought this up because a lot of people ask me, like, Alex, how can I get involved in Bitcoin or how can I work in crypto mm -hmm. or whatever? And, and, you know, I mean, depending, you can be m mega interested in Bitcoin or, yeah. or crypto or other parts of crypto. And don't have to make it your job, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you mm -hmm. can. There's there's an industry out here for with jobs, right? Um, but I love it when I meet people who are just like big Bitcoiners or big Ethereans that just like have normal <laughs> some other non-crypto job. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's why I always liked introducing you as a medical doctor. I always <laughs> just think it's kind of funny because we don't have that many people come by, yeah. like Galaxy or the studio, yeah. that aren't in crypto full time. Yeah, it was, now, to it was be clear, a big you do a lot of stuff in crypto, like sure. extracurricularly though. But yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you but I think that. that so I mean if you, if you really want Bitcoin to be like 
to take over, if, especially if you believe like in, in um, what's it called? Bitcoin, like running the whole world. Hyper Bitcoinization. Hyper Bitcoinization. Yeah. The like, idea is it's hyperinflation, but it's yeah. Bitcoinization. Yeah. All the people in hyper Bitcoinization, they're not going to be like Bitcoin VC investors. They have to be regular people. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, um, but I also think that having having a normie job is important because it it makes you advocate for normal people and not for the collapse of society. And it also helps you see what problems, what um, friction points that normal people have that you might neglect if you are just kind of crypto native all the time. Yeah. So I think it's super important to to have a foot in the real world and not just be totally entrenched in crypto all the time. That's true no matter whether you do or don't work in crypto, by the way. Yeah, Try if you to, work in crypto, you can volunteer. And, and you get can, out and touch grass and meet people and yeah, get exactly. out of your bubble. I'm laughing. There was an episode of South Park that for some reason is coming to my mind, a quite old one. You you, you may remember this, um, where uh, the hippies all come to town and they're like, no, man, we, we don't need the town. They're kind of like anarchists, hippies. And they're like, no, dude, we don't need the town, man. We get rid of the local government, dude. Like, But like, what if you had a place, bro, where like, like there was a man who baked bread and like when, when you needed <laughs> bread, like... You gave him stuff for the bread, and then he just like, then there was a school, there was a place kids could like go and learn, man. And the kids are like, you mean like a town? <laughs> exactly <laughs> They're like right. a town? Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of makes me think of the, you know, the anti-institutionalists versus the, you know, I guess more realistic institutionalists, right? They're, yeah. People are like, no, dude, we can do this all different. It's like, dude, we have that currently. That yeah. is society. You just want it slightly do it slightly better or slightly differently. Yeah. Yeah, there's another meme that really describes this well that I posted the other day where it's the, you know the old school political compass. Yeah, yeah. And there's like a there's like a person missing a brain on each of the four corners, but they all have the same thought, which is I can't wait for society society to collapse and my ideal utopia can emerge. Yeah. It's like it's not just the libertarians who think this, right? If it was maybe libertarianism would have some shot of emerging from this chaos, but also the authoritarians are thinking this. They want yeah. they want to have Russia and the CCP on the march once after the collapse. And so rather than advocating for that, let's like try to make the world work. I like that. Um, this is a great conversation, Dennis. Anything else you want to throw out here before we wrap? I mean, I, I would encourage people to read Dennis's writing. It's quite good. Um, and I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I've learned a lot from it. And um, but what are you thinking? What's what's next in your near term horizon? Man, Bitcoin wise, like, you know, or, yeah. or anything, you know? I just huddle Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is supposed to be boring on the base layer, and then we need to have fun on the things on top of it, whether it's inscriptions or, or whatnot. And I'm just I'm optimistic about the world. I'm optimistic about Bitcoin, and I think those two actually can work really well together. And we don't have to usurp one to for the other to succeed. Great final thought, Dennis Porto, medical doctor, my friend, uh, Taproot Wizard, um, founder of Huat Ventures, and uh, a great author on Substack. Check him out. Um, thanks for joining Galaxy Brains. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Galaxy Brains. Thank you for listening. Hey, thanks to our guest, Dennis Porto, one of my old friends. Really happy to have him on the show. It was, I thought it was a really great interview. Hope everyone has enjoyed the long weekend. And um, look, we'll be back next week as always. Until then, have a great and safe weekend. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.